0: If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to mclanahanacademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, Episode 533. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook, the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. It's always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. Get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. Also, click on that support tab at brianmclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. Get your book plate. If you want my autograph on one of my books, you can pick that up. It's a great way to get that. Purchase one of my books. You can also go to anchor.fm. You can support the show there. You can click on that shop tab at BrianMcClanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. You can go to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, Learn T-R-U-E, History.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. And I do appreciate all of that. It keeps it free of charge. But then again, you can also share the podcast around on social media, rate it where you get your podcasts. You can get your pod- this podcast on all major podcast platforms. And you can... Spread the word, right? Let people know you're listening to it. Send me those emails for show requests. I appreciate those as well. All right. I want to talk about an article that appeared in the American Conservative as we wrap up this week. It's by Bradley Green, and and he is a very good conservative scholar. Uh, I've met him once, and uh, he's he's a nice fellow. I met him years ago, in fact. Uh, But he is... um, he wrote a really good article for the American conservative on the Southern tradition, and it's gotten a lot of traction. Uh, it's it's good, and I want to go over it today because he brings up some very good points, and when I read this, of course, he was uh, highly influenced by Don Livingston. Don Livingston was a professor of philosophy at Emory University, and he was uh, a Hume scholar, is a Hume scholar. And so uh, Bradley Green uh, has, um, has written this, uh, this very good essay, and you can see Don Livingston all over it, right? But he brings up an article early on that I've also talked about on this podcast, Alan Gelzo's Why We Must Forget the Lost Cause. Um, I talked about that already. But uh, I want to go through this because he, he brings up some very good points about some things. So he says, we're, we're standing at a constitutional crossroads. We should not cut ourselves off from the full American political tradition. Much of human life is bound up with memory, whether in school, when one memorizes dates, grammar rules, and mathematical formulas, or in relationships, when one remembers birthdays or anniversaries, or as we age, when we remember good people and experiences. We tend to associate memory with wisdom, too. We remember the past, whether it be good, bad, or ugly, in order to live wiser lives in the present. Thus, I was somewhat puzzled when I stumbled upon a piece by prominent historian Alan Gelzo, Why We Must Forget the Lost Cause, published on May 12, 2021, at the website of the Gospel Coalition. Gelzo has had a long interest in Southern things, even penning a book on Abraham Lincoln entitled Redeemer-President. But I was struck by Gelzo, a historian, calling on people to forget. Now, this was published, uh, of course, we just talked about Gelzo and his Robert E. Lee last week. Gelzo's Robert E. Lee. He says, Now, in fairness to Gelzo, the piece at the Gospel Coalition is mainly working to debunk what Gelzo sees as five key tenets of Lost Cause ideology and is not, at least explicitly, a broadside against the South. But for those who have eyes to see, Gelzo, to his credit, notes the apparent incongruity of a historian who calls a people to forget aspects of the past, but his reflection on this question is oh so brief. Now, I rip this piece up on the points that he made, but I think this is an interesting position. Why would a historian tell us to forget? What he's trying to do, though, more importantly, is trying to get people to remember a different past. Because you see, Gelzo believes that there's a myth. That myth is incorrect, so you have to believe our myth. And Gelzo is operating from a position as a Yankee from Yankee land or Yankee dumb, however, he describes it. That would be the righteous cause myth, right? He's trying to supplant one set of myths with his own. This is a battle over how we remember the past. History is the remembered past. So, how do we remember that? I mean, how does. If if Southerners are remembering this way, he's saying you're remembering incorrectly. It's not that's not a correct memory. This memory is correct. My memory is correct. This is Gelzo the authoritarian. This is Gelzo the totalitarian. This is Gelzo the Lincolnian. And this is what's really at stake now: how we remember the past. And you've got we talked about it this week. You've got conservatives who would say we need remember Grant differently. That he was actually the good guy that all the republicans were the good guys and all the democrats were the bad guys well we know we can punch holes in all of that but this is what this is where we are right and then you've got the democrats no 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 we need to remember 1619 is the founding of america and it's all bad everything is bad all these people are bad doesn't matter who they were they were all just bad so green says my purpose here is not so much to offer a, de- a detailed response to gelzo But to take his short essay as a stepping-off point to suggest why Americans might not want to forget. And indeed, not to forget the South in particular. Features of the South, including but not limited to its literature, its political theory, and the way certain fundamentally American uh, commitments were manifested in the South, are worthy of remembering and perhaps even reappropriating. I I mean, this this is a defense of the South. It's a very good essay. The South has its problems, but even Northerners and Westerners are starting to head our way. I recently called a French restaurant in Chicago to purchase a gift certificate for someone who was tutoring me in French. The lady who answered was certainly not French, but had a wonderful Chicago accent, as far as I can discern Chicago accents. When I told her where I was from, Jackson, Tennessee, she immediately asked, what's it like? Oh, do you mean Jackson, I replied? Yes, what's it like? I thought for a split second and for whatever reason felt I could be a tad unfiltered with this kind lady. Well, it's a medium-sized town. The weather is generally great. It's a great place to raise a family, and it's sane. No Antifa, no riots. Oh, that sounds wonderful, she replied. We are leaving Chicago. Oh, I understand, I then replied. I cannot imagine living there right now. I quickly felt like I may have crossed the line and began to apologize. Oh, I am sorry. I'm sure Chicago has great aspects. No, she quickly said, Chicago is a disaster. We are ready to leave, and now? Oh, I replied, well, come on down. We'll take care of you down here. It was an intriguing exchange, he writes, not least because in this brief encounter, this lady and I connected because of a kind of common humanity. Wanting to live in a sane place where it is at least generally possible to live a kind of sane life. And if this kind person and her family head down to Tennessee, I hope she and her family look us up. My family would be happy to to have them over for a meal, and we mean it. I myself was actually not raised in the South, but in Alaska. My parents were born and raised in Texas and New Mexico, but moved to Alaska in their 20s and raised a family. They have now retired to the beautiful Hill Country area of Central Texas. I went to school in Louisiana, Kentucky, and then Texas, and I now lived and worked in Tennessee for 23 years. I've lived twice as long in the South as I have lived anywhere else. My purpose in this essay is rooted in the sense, my sense that Eugene Genovese was correct when he wrote, in his The Southern Tradition... The Northern victory in 1865 silenced a discreetly Southern interpretation of American history and national identity, and it promoted a contemptuous dismissal of all things Southern as nasty, racist, immoral, and intellectually inferior. Indeed, this discreetly Southern interpretation of American history, which has already largely been forgotten, but is worthy of memory and attention, it is that, he says, Interestingly, Genovese notes that this great conflagration of 1861-1865 quote, sanctified northern institutions and intentions which included the unfettered expansion of a bourgeois worldview and the suppression of alternative visions of social order. If Genovese is right, it may be timely to explore this discreetly southern interpretation of American history. Let me pause there for a second. This is something that the Abbeville Institute has been trying to do since 2002. Nearly 20 years now. We've been trying to do that, to come up with a way of looking at America and explaining America. One way to begin to grasp a discreetly Southern interpretation is to think of two main tendencies that animated the American founding in the decades that followed, a Hamiltonian tendency and a Jeffersonian tendency. I first began to think this way upon reading the work of Hume scholar Donald Livingston. These could be seen as centralizing Hamiltonian versus decentralizing Jeffersonian tendencies. This is a generalization, but it is assuredly generally true. Hamilton was an advocate of a central bank and a strong executive, the president. Jefferson was, at least when consistent, more interested in the decentralized nature of the United States. By the way, if you want to see about the app, go to abbevilleinstitute.org. I podcast over there also once a week. If you want this pod, if you want me five times a week, just go to abbevilleinstitute.org and get that. Abbeville Institute podcasts as well. It's all things Southern, but it's really good. I focus on what we do over there. Uh, But we get into all these things, right? We do this on a regular basis. This essay could have been written for the Abbeville Institute. It's just published at American Conservative. What lies perhaps philosophically behind a Hamiltonian tendency in the U.S.? We might push our Hamilton versus Jefferson schema back 150 to 200 years or so to then speak of an Althusian tradition, and a Hobbesian one. Johannes Althusius was a German reformed political theorist, most well known for his book Politicia, first published in 1603. In this work, Althusius argued that there are numerous and varied associations with overlapping authority. Political authority flowed from the governed outward to those varied overlapping authorities, and this authority could be retracted as ultimate political sovereignty rested in the governed, i.e. the citizens themselves. Let me stop there, Althusius. I remember reading Althusius uh, in the late 90s. And uh, again, it was because of this interest in these particular positions. And um, so this is, it's great that he brings this up because you can get, I think Liberty Fund published a version of this. That's probably where I got it. As a matter of fact, it is my my copy of it. It is a Liberty Fund copy. And it was probably 1999, 1998, somewhere in there that they published it. So I think it's still available. I would recommend you go get it, Johannes Althusius. Thomas Hobbes, on the other hand, especially in his Leviathan, argued that persons come into the world as fundamentally individuals with no organic or natural political association. The situation into which we are born is virtually all against all, resulting in lives that are solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. In order to gain some level of security and peace, individuals surrender authority to a Leviathan, what we tend to call the state. But this is a devil's bargain. Individuals grant power and authority to Leviathan, but it is a one-way transfer of power. Leviathan gets the power, we get security and peace. This is the boot on your throat. So Hobbes also believed, of course, we're born into a state of nature. And in that state of nature, again, it's all against all. The only thing that saves man is the boot. It's power. Because man is inherently evil. I mean, there's There's something to this, or born, you could could say, softer version, we're born with original sin, so they're going to do things, so the state has to do it. Now, you're born into a family, though, so you're not necessarily born into an individual state of nature. You're born into that structure, whatever that structure is. And so from that structure then builds out. And so you could say this is also Aristotelian, because Aristotle in politics said the core of all society is the family. You have to be born into that. You're never born without some type of structure, unless you're born and abandoned. And that can happen. But as the family has been the primary core unit throughout all of human history, it doesn't matter what society you're talking about, that creates the basis of whatever government you're going to have and how the fathers have long dominated that, because it was always dominated by the men. That's the society in which we're going to get. Now we could say that things are changing in the world and how we think about male-dominated society or female-dominated whatever whatever it is. But certainly, uh, that's been the basis of the human experience, the family. This is why politics starts with that. It has to. It's the basis of everything. And in reality, the father in the family and the mother, but the father in the family provides that security and peace. That's his job, to provide security and peace for the children, for the family whatever way he can do it. Of course, mothers have a predominant role in that too, but that was the role of family. Security, regularity, and peace. These are two radically different visions of political order, and upon a moment's thought, it is not difficult to see which vision of political order the Althusian or Hobbesian has won in the contemporary Western world. We might think, then think, again to generalize, of a kind of Althusian-Jeffersonian tendency and a Hobbesian-Hamiltonian tendency, a centralizing tendency, and a decentralizing tendency. If one reflects upon the South, and especially upon the conflict with the northern states both leading up to and including the War of the 1860s, one way of grasping this great conflict is to see it as a kind of epic battle between the centralizing Hobbesian-Hamiltonian tendency and the decentralizing Althusian-Jeffersonian tendency. This becomes evident when we read the words of Abraham Lincoln himself. In a letter dated 22 August 1862, but published August 25th, Lincoln wrote Horace Greeley of the New York Tribune. In this letter, Lincoln wrote, I would save the Union. If I could save the Union without freeing any slaves, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. Saving the Union. So again, Lincoln was a centralizer. It was all about the Union. Ending slavery was a byproduct of that. Of course, it happened, but it's a byproduct of it. It wasn't why Lincoln went to war. It wasn't why Lincoln refused to allow the South to go. If he was interested in ending slavery in the United States, he ended it, essentially, if he let the South go. It's over. Because there's theoretically no more—I mean, now, we know that there were still slave states in the Union— There were still slave states in the Union in 1861, and even throughout the war there were still slave states in the Union, but that could have been dealt with much more quickly, the few remaining by 1862 that were in the Union. Saving the Union. While Lincoln may have had other motives besides saving the Union, it is clear that in his own words, he was committed in an effort of centralization. Since Lincoln's goal was to force the southern states back into the Union, whether or not it meant freeing any slaves, one must ask why. Why? at least a part of the reason would seem to be some sort of predilection in favor of centralization and against decentralization but why why i mean he's asking these questions why would lincoln be a centralizer this is going back to what i talked about earlier this week you can't have conservatism with lincoln not american conservatism not any ten- look lincoln was not a conservative he was a reformer he was a european style reformer All of these ideas that are coming out of the 19th century, none of them really is organically American in terms of the left. It's coming out of Europe. They weren't organically American. They're European. But the American position, this Jeffersonian worldview, now you could say, yeah, you've got Althusian, you've got Aristotle, you've got, of course, all of that is always operating on us in Western civilization. But in Forgotten Conservatives in American History, we argue that these things are distinctively American. This idea of independence and self-determination, that is American. And the way that Americans conceptualized of it. The British had it too. The Greeks had it. The Romans had it. I mean, everyone had this Republican ideal, but Americans had it in a way that no other people in the world had had it to that point. And it was built on all these things that came out of the English slash Brit- the Anglo experience, It was based on, of course, their understanding of Greek and Roman history, but certainly it was uniquely American. Lincoln was not uniquely American. The reformers of the 19th century were not uniquely American. A new monograph by Italian political scientist Luigi Bassani, Marco Bassani, chaining down Leviathan may help answer that question. Professor Bassani argues essentially that From 1776 to 1865, the United States attempted to engage in a system of self-government different from Europe's centralizing tendency of a large nation-state. In short, the U.S. was not generally like European nations with their large central governments. That is, while Europe in the 1800s was captivated by the centralizing impulse or tendency, the United States tended to resist this centralizing tendency, at least up until 1865. As Bassani writes, "...the motherland of the state represents a political universe that was in the beginning America's other, and over the long run, it insinuated itself into the very fabric of, Amer- of the American Republic. But the U.S., while starting as a federation of quasi-autonomous republics, the colonies and then the states, has virtually abandoned the Federalist Order, that which existed from 1776 to 1865. Thus, Bassani can write, if anything, the current U.S. system is but a Pallid reverse imagine, uh, image I'm sorry of the one constructed by the Founding Fathers, which survived with varying fortunes until the Civil War. If Pisani is, Pisani is correct, Daniel Hannon's 2011 book, While America Must Not Follow Europe, is about 150 years too late. We began to follow Europe in earnest in the 1860s. I would say this is true, and also before that. When you look at the Seneca Falls Convention, that's European. When you look at what the leftists, the reformers, were doing in America, that's European. Now, they could say, well, wait a second here. This idea of the Declaration, that's purely American. And we're following that. All men are created equal. Slavery is wrong. That's purely American. So they could argue that they're doing something that's purely American. Uh, I would say that's incorrect. The Europeans even were leading the way in... Ending slavery before Americans. I mean, you had it long before that. People in in Europe were talking about ending slavery before Americans, where even though you did have Americans who were concerned about the institution, but they didn't really know what to do with it, Europe, Europe was insulated from it because they didn't have large populations of slaves in Europe, so it was easier for them. Bassani's thesis is that Lincoln's war actually helped to destroy the federalism of the United States and certainly did not rescue or restore federalism. Christopher Caldwell says something a tad similar in his recent book, Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s, when he argues that there are effectively two constitutions, the constitution that emerged in the 8, 1780s and the de facto constitution that emerged out of the 1960s. Bassani's argument simply implies that Caldwell ceases a bit off by about 100 years. Yes, 100% correct. But you could actually go back before that. You could say there was another constitution already operating when you got to John Marshall. There, was another, there were two constitutions. There was the original constitution as ratified, and then there was one the Federalists foisted on America through legislation and Supreme Court decisions beginning almost immediately after the Congress met in 1789. We have, we have an unwritten constitution, and we have a written constitution. This has been the way since the first Congress. What Lincoln did, on Bassani's reading, is reshape the American political system in a radical way. A federation of quasi-autonomous states, which had only given enumerated and limited and defined power to the federal government, was in fact replaced by a European-like nation-state in which the individual states of the Union were simply administrative units and radically subservient to the federal government. In short, Hobbes, Hamilton, and Lincoln won. Althusius, Jefferson, and particularly the states of the American South, lost. We are all Hobbesians and Hamiltonians and Lincolnians now. Many honest persons recognize this. Bassani quotes Thurgood Marshall, who said, The Union survived the Civil War, not the Constitution. 100% correct. Historian George Fletcher could state matters quite directly in his Our Secret Constitution, How Lincoln Redefined American Democracy. The first Constitution plays on the theme of distrust in government. We must secure our freedoms against potentially abusive officials seeking rents by pursuing their own bureaucratic interests. The second post-Lincolnian constitution presupposes trust in an aggressive government, a watchdog of transactions that might slide into the forbidden territory of involuntary servitude. In short, both friend and foe of Lincoln often concede what appears to be clearly the case. Lincoln's war was a watershed in American history, and with that war there was a fundamental reorientation and change in America's political makeup and structure. The federalism of the United States Constitution was, in effect, eviscerated. And thus, at least in one sense, the U.S. was no longer ruled by our Constitution in a meaningful way. Okay, this is true, right? If you followed this podcast for any length of time, I've talked a lot about this. If you have gotten any of my McClanahan Academy courses, this is how they're all structured, particularly my American Constitutions class. My originalist papers classes. All of that is designed to push back against this Lincolnian Constitution. This is why you can't base American conservatism on Lincoln. You cannot do it. I've said it on Tuesday of this week. I've said it when I bashed the Claremont people. You, I said it yesterday Rich Lowry. You can't do it. You can't base American conservatism on that. This means that the United States, and conservatism especially, is in a significant intellectual, if not existential, crisis. While we may speak of this or that being constitutional, we live in an era in which the Constitution plays virtually no meaningful role in governing our country. Examples could be given from both major political parties. When Republicans vote for this or that budget, year after year, in which a multitude of budget options have no constitutional warrant whatsoever, they are showing complete disregard for the plain meaning of the Constitution. And when Nancy Pelosi was asked by a reporter where in the Constitution the federal government was given the authority to virtually take over the American health care system, Pelosi simply laughed at the reporter, and she did so rightly in a sense. We find ourselves in a dilemma. Should we actually seek to live in accord with, at the political level, our own Constitution? Is it worth it? If we do not seek to reestablish the Constitution as the law of the land, then what is the law of the land? These are not minor questions. This is why in 26 speeches that changed America, I used William Seward's higher law speech. Because that was radical. It was radical in that the Constitution didn't matter. That didn't matter. There was a higher law. You see, he openly admitted there was a higher law. And I do that, I talk about that speech there. You need to get that 26 speeches that changed America. Because it's one of them. So was Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, by the way. And so I ask, Could it be the case that what was defeated at Appomattox was not traitors nor seditionists, but actually a better understanding of the American federalist system, that which exists today? Well, of course. Now, this is almost scandalous to say this now. I mean, Bradley Green is taking great personal risk in American conservatism and in American politics to say maybe the South was right. Oh, my gosh. People have been saying that for years, but now that's lost cause mythology. If you read Alan Gelzo, if you look at Brett Bear with his stupid book on Grant, all this is, and, and Gelzo's stupid book on Lee, all this is now, ooh, that's scandalous. That's horrible to say. You can't say that. Herman Melville published a number of poems related to the war between the states. His battle pieces and aspects of the war was published in 1866. A particularly interesting poem is Lee in the Capitol. In this poem, Melville recreates a scene where Robert E. Lee appears before a Reconstruction Committee of Congress. Melville took what he called poetical liberty and wrote a poem about this event, and in the poem, recreates Lee's testimony. One of the most interesting aspects of this poem is where Melville poignantly draws out the relationship, conceptually and principally, between George Washington and Robert E. Lee. The key lines read as follows. Who looks at Lee must think of Washington, and pain must think, and hide the thought, so deep with grievous meaning it is fraught. Melville's interesting. Of course, Melville opposed the war. He also had a very f- interesting poem in that collection where he is belittling nor- rich Northerners. You stand on the tops of the buildings watching the riots below, the New York City draft riots, and you've got uh, all their sons being paid to not fight in the war, and you've got all these ruffian down there being dragged out to the front to be slaughtered so they can fat in their wallets. Melville was against the war. He's a Democrat. His entire family were Democrats. And uh, there were a lot of Democrats against the war. You know, you have Nathaniel Hawthorne. You have all kinds of people that were against the war. Melville asks us, is it possible that when one looks at Robert E. Lee, one is in fact looking at George Washington? Indeed, when one looks at Lee, can one see Washington? Lee did what Washington would have almost as surely done if Washington had been living in the 1860s. He would have defended his homeland. Lee was committed to the Union and wanted to see it thrive and prosper. Lincoln had even asked Lee to play a leadership role in the Union Army. However, once Lincoln raised troops for the purpose of invading the South, there was no real question of what a principal Virginian like Lee had to do. Lee, as he ought, chose to defend his land and family and neighbors against invasion. Now, that paragraph right there is where Gelso is probably His eyes are bulging out of his head, and he's frazzling his hair at that particular point, what he has left of it. He's rubbing his bald head because, oh, no, no, Lee and Washington, two different people. Washington never would have supported that war. You have this now. You have people, Washington wouldn't have done it. Washington would have sided with the Union. Washington would have been against secession. He would have been against all this. How do we know? How do we know that's what he would have done? I mean, I could make a conjecture based on some of the things he said. He was against secession. He was against factionalism. He's against these things. But if it came down to oppressive force, and we know he marched into Pennsylvania, so maybe he would have taken the side of the Union, maybe not. And of course, Gelzel, well, but there are there people in Lee's family, his own family that sided with the Union. That would have been the patriotic thing to do. No, Lee chose treason. This is the argument now. I think that they're, all those people are wrong, but that's the argument. So this is where all the... Lincolnian people are probably just frothing at the mouth of what Bradley Green said. Bradley Green just believes in the lost cause myth. I suspect that in the line above, in pain must think and hide the thought. Melville is closing in on a difficulty, on a difficult reality. Excuse me. If there is that much similarity between Washington and Lee, then what does it mean to be an American? That is, if Lee was simply being faithful to the principles and realities of constitutional government. Is it possible that Lee was the better heir of being a true American in his time? Is it possible that Lee was actually right? And if that is the case, is it, it is tempting, perhaps almost existentially necessary, in Melville's words, to hide the thought. For if Lee and not Lincoln was the true heir of the best of American thought and principles, the implications are quite grievous indeed. So this is interesting too, and I say this because Melville, of course, was a northerner writing this. It wasn't a southerner. You see, the lost cause myth wasn't just southerners this was americans who saw it this way north and south north and south in fact i would say if you look at the numbers the majority of americans saw it this way if you lincoln only got 54% of the popular vote in 1864 46% of the north voted against him and we know there was voter fraud there we know it we know the soldier vote was fraudulent So maybe Lincoln was actually closer to 50-50. And if you add the South, which you wouldn't have found many Lincoln supporters at all, Lincoln is a vastly minority president. He didn't even get 40% of the vote in 1860. 39.6. So that means 60% of Americans were against his vision of America. You see, America was Robert E. Lee. Not Abraham Lincoln. But because the North won the war... America becomes Lincoln, stupidly. And conservatives somehow believe that this is the way you win by adopting a European leftist view of America. We now live in a Hobbesian and Lincolnian world. In one sense, things do not have to be this way. There are other models, and there will be other historical options which might have been pursued I recommend brushing off or finding copies of *Althusius*, as well as the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and the U.S. Constitution. Along the way, pick up Eugene Genovese and ask, Why did this former Marxist who wrote, on one of the most seminal, who wrote one of the most seminal works ever written on slavery have such a love for the South? And pick up Russell Kirk, one of the founders of the 20th century conservatism, and ask, Why did Kirk sing such high praises for the South Carolinian statesman John C. Calhoun? Kirk once wrote of Calhoun, Calhoun was the best exponent of the idea of political order that underlies both the written constitution and the unwritten constitution of the American Republic. No small praise. Didn't Kirk know better? Perhaps Kirk did know some things and perhaps we should listen to him. If then we seek to remember our history and the South and choose not to forget this its Jeffersonian Althusian tradition, then we might work for the recovery of key insights and instincts an emphasis on decentralization, a recognition of the centrality of the states in accord with the Constitution, especially the Tenth Amendment, a recovery of the notion that the states preceded the federal government, an acknowledgment that it is best for political problems to be solved whenever possible by the most local level, something both Protestants and Catholics have affirmed in their own ways, that there may be times when the wisest and most prudent option is for various regions, states, or groups of states to peacefully go their own way. As Christians seek wisdom and how to live good and honorable lives in the present, and likewise travel as pilgrims to the Celestial City, we need all the friends and help we can get. And I think it will require revisiting, and certainly not forgetting aspects of our nation's history that might indeed be easier to forget. It will require rethinking whether we must or should want to live in the Lincolnian or a Hobbesian universe in which we now live. There are other paths, and they are worth remembering. So, I love this piece. It's really good. And again, it could have been published, published at the Abbeville Institute. I mean, he is certainly um, on point with where we're going with all this. And all the things I've said for, for years on this podcast and, of course, uh, in McClanahan Academy courses, this is exactly where we're going with that. And I applaud Bradley Goon for writing this and for the, the American Conservative for publishing it because uh, we've got so much pushing the other way now from other parts of conservatism. We're really having this out. I mean, the little ISI panel discussion on the American founding, we're having it out now. This is another debate. We're having it out again as to where we need to go with this. And I think there are people at Claremont who see it. They just have to break that attachment to Lincoln, and they've got to embrace the South. They don't want to do it. They don't want to do it because they've been told for years the South is bad, Calhoun is bad, Calhoun is evil. You can't have these things. They don't want to do it. You've got Hugh Hewitt at Hillsdale. Oh, sir, Calhoun is evil. And you've got Michael Anton writing an entire chapter critical of Calhoun. They shouldn't. They should be praising Calhoun. That's why I did a little video for Abbeville Institute talking about how great Calhoun actually is in terms of American politics and why we should listen to him. But you have to get over the fact that Southerners were slave owners they had views that were out of line with what we think in modern society, but yet they left us a lot. And this is where Genovese, who's a Marxist, loved the South. That question that Bradley Green asks How is it that Genovese could love the South? This Marxist who wrote a book on slavery, who was critical of the slaveholding South in that way, could still love the South. Well, because he says in the Southern tradition, you can separate the two. There's two things we're talking about here slavery did not make the South, right? It wasn't the key to the South. Slavery did not make the South. This is what David Hacker Fisher says in Albion Seed as well. Slavery didn't make the South. There's something else going on here. So, I wanted to end the week with this essay because I think it was so good and because it really articulates what we've talked about on this podcast again for years. And I'll see you next week on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.